Jerry Needleman, welcome back to the new school. Glad to be with you. <laughs> Let's um, take a breath and just uh, go into the quiet for a few minutes with a reflection on why am I here, who am I, and Gail Needleman uh, will play us a Gurdjieff piece. Thank you, Gail. Gail Needleman playing Gurdjieff on the piano. Last time I started us off by saying to you, what is love? And your response, which was wonderful, I now understand in a deeper way, was love is work. You said it's joyful work, but it's work. Um, and somehow that connects, it seems to me, to the question that we're asking today. Who am I and why am I here? Um, I was driving down from the dentist this morning in Petaluma and thinking, how would I answer that question? And the answer that came to me was, because <clears throat> I think we each 
need to ask ourselves that or we wouldn't be here. Who are you? Who am I? So my working description would be that I'm a radically imperfect human being who was given a few useful skills through no grace of, no, you know, not because of my own, uh, I was just given some skills. And um, I try to do as little harm as I can and try to be as useful to life as I can. So I thought those were the four things, radically imperfect, given a few gifts, try not to do too much harm, and do as much good as I can. So my question to you is, who are you? How would you describe yourself? Well, we no longer use carbon paper, so... Uh, <laughs> it'd be hard to disagree. But... Music helped me to remember that um, the questions like that go very deep inside of us. And in this particular case, when there's exceptional music to support the feeling that arises with those questions become very, very essential. You begin to realize that the questions themselves, when they're deeply felt, begin to be the answer because kind of a question of who am I, why, why am I on this world, in this world, what am I here for? When, the, the, when those questions are deeply faced and um, when you know that nothing that my mind offers as an answer, which it is in the habit of doing, when all the answers seem thin, but the question remains rich. And one realizes that in that state of deep questioning about my life, myself, I'm coming in touch with a part of myself I'm usually not in touch with. I go through my life with uh, doing things and accomplishing things, failing things. Um, but there's a part of myself that I'm not often in touch with. It's, it's, you could call it um, my real identity or my deeper self or something in that direction. And I lose touch with that usually, that part of, 
in the you know, give and take of every day getting and spending my life. And that sense of feeling and sensing there's a, another uh, identity within me and recognizing when I'm given a little taste of it that it's been calling to me often in my life and I turn, don't really know how to turn toward it. I, I'm so used, we're so used to having answers that we sometimes forget that these kinds of questions are, don't really, can't really be answered in the way we answer to much of our life. We come in touch with a part of ourselves that when that exists, that kind of a nostalgia, a kind of yearning for something that we, is our real home, as it were. And then we feel this somehow is what I am. I don't need the answers that the head is so, the mind is so easy to give, you know. Maybe it's useful in certain ways, but the experience of this deep questioning of myself and my purpose and what, what I am is as a function deeply connected to my real nature, with real human being nature. And so the answer, if you want to call it an answer to that question, is that part of myself which is, awakens when we really are silent and we reflect and Maybe sometimes it happens in our life when we're shaken by something and deeply troubled or deeply concerned or deeply joyous or something totally pulls the rug out from under me. So it's that answer, it's that, that aspect of myself, which I think is worth exploring in an exchange that we, we are having and can lead to a lot of very important aspects of this yearning for to be, not just to, to be what I am meant to be. And then we find, I think, in, in, in when we study these things in the lives of great teachers, we see that when, well, I see it myself, I think we all do, <clears throat> when we're in touch with that deep part that questions where the question is, the deep question is much more important than the quick answer. We see that we can sometimes manifest, act in ways that we really never do act, with love, with compassion, with great, great care, great attention, great joy even, or great sorrow, but a sorrow that is essentially deeply human, and so can, can we go from there into all the important aspects of this old question? Is, that's, that's how I would respond to it at this moment with this wonderful opportunity we have. I, respond, I would respond with that. Thank you. That's beautiful. 
You are a professor of philosophy at the University of San Francisco, and I have on this table not all of your books, but some of them. Um, but those who don't know your work, uh, you've written well over a dozen books, probably 20 at least, something like that. How many? 20? <laughs> well, yes, you've written... I, I you, you came I, to... I think, I, I think it is 20, maybe, yeah. maybe even 50. <laughs> you came to visibility, I think, in many, for many people with a book called The New Religions. Um, you've written uh, Lost Christianity, A Journey of Rediscovery, a wonderful book called Why Can't We Be Good, which I like a lot. Uh, a book called What is God, uh, a book called Time and Soul, uh, a book called uh, The Unknown World, Notes on the Meaning of the Earth, uh, your book The Heart of Philosophy, an important book called The American Soul, The Way of the Physician, Rediscovering the Heart of Medicine, The Wisdom of Love, which I also loved, uh, the, in the Indestructible Question, Essays on Nature, Spirit, and the Human Paradox, uh, and uh, if I don't know, and your book on money, which is really an excellent book. But uh, then you also um, you also wrote uh, you did a collection of essays called Gurdjieff um, essays and reflections on the man and his teaching, and I think it's wonderfully symbolic that among all these large books, your book on Gurdjieff is this big. <laughs> And uh, it, it's very small for those who are listening and can't see. And so, um, what? And I've read, I've read a lot of your books now. And um, first of all, for for these to prepare for these conversations, but also because I like them. And um, you write beautifully. And um, you you write for people. You don't write for academia. Um, so every book is a meditation that's accessible to people, and yet it goes very deep. And every book is both deep and subtle, as well as accessible. So you wear your learning very lightly. Um, and all of those are real uh, gifts. But as I came to know you, I came to understand that there was a force behind all these books. And the force was a teacher, and the teacher's name was Gurdjieff. And so, as a way of entering into this question that we're asking, who am I, why am I here, it might be useful to talk a little about Gurdjieff. Sure, I welcome that. So who was Gurdjieff? Well, it was a, it was born in, no, there's not too much exact information about dates, mm -hmm. but sometime around 18, 66, 1877, somewhere in that time, he, he came from, he uh, was born in, in uh, the Russian part of Armenia, Alexandropol at that time, and uh, very briefly uh, felt driven by these kinds of questions, almost from his very childhood. And he gathered some people, younger people around him who were also in undertook a extraordinary search through that region of Central Asia, trying to find what he thought 
must be must exist somewhere a kind of knowledge that the religion that he knew and the science that he knew which was both which were very much a part of the, the culture he was living in could not answer so it was a, a search for a truth a knowledge about life and purpose of our lives and what we're meant to be the very questions we're raising here in very unusual places with teachers that were not so obvious not not easily found sources which he was the first to discover in a way and we brought all these things all these teachings whether it was from parts of the Christian tradition that had gotten lost, parts of the maybe the Islamic tradition that had, weren't known, parts of the Buddhist tradition, but another kind of a teaching which seemed to be at the heart of all the great spiritual esoteric teachings. It, sometime, somehow he was gifted with the capacity to, to find something that brought all these into a common root which could then be expressed in a language he felt that modern human beings needed, that modern human beings, modern man, modern people, contemporary people, had by and large no longer were able to hear the message of the ancient traditions. And they needed something in another language that could bring the source of all these things into life in our world. He, he seemed to foresee the the great danger that this culture, this whole world, was in now. And he brought this teaching in a completely new language of a, on a completely ancient truth into, started with in, in Russia around 1912, just before the revolution, gathered a few people around him, gave them not just words, but experiences, because he was a master at providing conditions in which people could experience both what you spoke about at the beginning, their radical, flawed nature, but also they could, given the capacity within themselves to experience what they were meant to be, to get a taste of what a human being was really meant to be, which he had said at one time that we could not even imagine what we we're capable of at this point, but how far we have to first know how far we are from it. And he was able to create conditions around him because of his quality of his na human nature and his genius of allowing life to be a teacher and allowing conditions to be give experiences and not just words and concepts, but actual verification and experience of how far we are from what we're meant to be and how great possibility we have within us if we're willing to struggle in an in a honest way for it. And he gathered many people together, not too many, but enough, and when the Russian Revolution started to come and the whole of the modern world began at that, that form of collapse, he led people through all the dangers of escaping from Russia through the Caucasus and wound up finally after many difficulties in the Western, in Western Europe and established a community where people could come and work intensively at what he called awakening. It had many aspects of it, including the music that we'll hear more of later. 
not only ideas, but dance and uh, human relationships. Uh, and uh, attracted more and more people and, and had certain crises in his life as a reaction to which he wrote, tried to put his teaching down in, in a book, which is a book <clears throat> unlike any other book uh, I had ever seen in my life, uh, which requires a tremendous amount of, of interest, a tremendous amount of the wish to, to understand. Uh, and uh, it enters into a person slowly over the years. And then more and more after the crisis of his, in the 20s when he, his life was in danger because of an automobile accident, he restarted things and the teaching began to be organized in Paris, in London, in New York, which and, and gave out branches into all, now by now, all the major cities of the Western world and a very significant center here in the Bay Area. So I don't know if that tells you anything about essential about him, but gives some out, external outline uh, yeah, of, the, of his sort of geography. Hmm. I thought uh, Gail's music brought Gurdjieff to life for me. And the most remarkable. Yeah, to me too. Yeah. It's, 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 he was able to do that. Yeah. One of his pupils was a gifted Russian young composer who was getting to be more known now. And the two of them worked together to create this very big body of music of that quality. Mm -hmm. You'll hear more later. So in response to the question, who am I? Gurdjieff uh, had a... Uh, a useful uh, memnonic or uh, approach where he spoke of, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this correctly, the way of the fakir. Yeah, fakir. Yeah. The way of the priest, the way of the yogi, and the fourth way. Could you say a little about those four approaches to the question of who am I? Well, probably many of us understand that... Um, <clears throat> There are many paths leading to what we might call, for lack of a better word, the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, many, many ways have existed since humanity was on Earth to become fully human. We are, sometimes we've been called <clears throat> in this teaching that man is at the, an incomplete animal. <clears throat> In order to become what he's meant to be, he needs to follow a path, a way of working, a way of struggling. And there are many, many ways up the mountain. And Gurdjieff had, at this point, communicated the idea, <clears throat> this idea of many ways, in a way that I had never seen before. Because... He saw his idea, his understanding of human nature, which we can go into, was that uniquely a human being does not just have one brain, 
one mind to think with, to perceive with, to understand, but three, a feeling, a mind of feeling, a heart of intelligence, not in the head centered exactly, but somewhere else, and also a a mind of movement and sensation and, and action. And these three minds each have their own kind of knowledge, their own kind of perception. In the mind of the head, which is very complex and has many levels which we we don't really are in touch with. In the mind, in the heart, in the chest, in the realm of this area, radiating out. And a mind in the lower parts of the body, in the uh, movement, in the sensation, in the sexuality, which is another center of intelligence. And a human being cannot be really a real human being until these three centers of intelligence, perception, feeling are coordinated, work together. As it is, most of us are lost more or less in one center of ourselves and don't really have much access except under severe conditions or under exceptional moments with knowledge and understanding in the heart and in the moving and instinctive part of our life. And he he divided the paths, the ways, as you put the, the way of the, the monk, you didn't, mm-hmm. say, you didn't say priest exactly, but it's yeah, the same yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. And the fakir, which had to do with physical, moving and instinctive part of, the, of our life, the monk with the devotional love part of ourselves, and the uh, intellect, which had to do with thought and purifying somehow the automatic movements of mental associations. Uh, and he called those three major ways. In, in, in the way of what's called in India, bhakti, or what would be Christianity as it's often known, <clears throat> devotional love and surrender, the way of conquest of the body, which many of us are aware of and rather uh, very limited form, what we call hatha yoga, which many kinds of yoga, of course, and the way of the mind, uh, the deep purification of the mind, which we think of as a yogi. And those three ways require a lot of work, a lot of commitment, and uh, somewhat of a withdrawal from everyday, ordinary life. I can only speak about these things very brief headlines, so you have to forgive me for the, it's just touching on these things briefly. And he spoke of, at the same time, what's now become well, rather well known as a fourth way, which combines and balances all the three parts in the midst of everyday life. And that's what he spoke of as his path, the fourth way. It's become a sort of a popular word all around now, but it takes a, it carries a sense the question of how to balance mind, the heart, the physical body, so that they all have the same wish, 
the same aim, the same correspond to each other, and it's very difficult and needs special conditions which he tried to create. That in one, in one or two sentences mm -hmm. is what he means by the fourth way. If it's not clear, we can speak further about it here. So you said we could go further into his understanding of what, what it is to be human. You, you had a phrase, you said you referred as you were speaking to a kind of a deeper dive into, um, I think you said what it is to be human or something like that. We have, everybody has moments, we all have moments in our life I'm sure everyone can remember some. Maybe often, maybe a little more often in childhood. But in a, or throughout our life, there are moments when, well, I remember once, for example, <clears throat> this, I was a young teenager, and I was walking, it was in, sometime in the, in, in the autumn, and, walking down the street looking at the leaves, beautiful falling leaves, and um, suddenly I had this experience of I am here. And I, Jerry Needleman, am here. And I said, it was like it had never happened before. <clears throat> and I've, we've all had experiences in difficult moments and crisis when every, everything falls away sometimes. Everything is upended. I feel I deal with it or I don't deal with it. I'm in difficulty or I'm not. I, I love or I or hate, I feel trapped or I feel liberated, but what we can, those moments are moments when very often when I appear, I, a different I than the one who's there whenever I say I. I say I like, I don't like, I want, I don't want, I drink, I don't drink, I'm here, I'm not. But there are moments when I'm just I, I'm I, and this I is the realest thing in my life at that moment. And it feels, it's more like, it's not at all the I that I usually use, and yet it's I, it's, me, it's myself. And this really is very important because when we speak of higher consciousness, <clears throat> and we speak of philosophical questions like <clears throat> God and so forth, and this quest, this Gurdjieff seems to have discovered, or at least given to understand, is that the higher element of human consciousness is the real I. Consciousness, in its genuine sense, it's a kind of awkward word, has the quality of <clears throat> I-ness, or more fully I-am-ness. And that is, when we taste that, and you all, we all have all tasted moments when, and those may be the only moments we really remember in 
flesh and blood detail in our whole life. At least for myself, I see that most of my life I know happened because I have records of it. <laughs> but in the moments of I, I know I could go back as though yesterday I could tell you everything, every detail. We know every detail. Mother walks into the room with a cookie when I'm three years old. I suddenly, I appear. Or I'm in an automobile accident and suddenly I have to turn my, the wheel in one-tenth of a second to avoid being killed. And I do it and I've come out of that. I was there. Or, you know, any number of things. We all have moments of, like that. That, when it, our culture, our culture doesn't know how to interpret that. That, it has no understanding in those, it, it happens, yes, but it's called a maybe a, a higher moment or a, what do they call privileged moment. But it doesn't interpret that as Gurdjieff did as the, and the appearance of my real human nature, my real being. I meant not to just have those as flashes in difficult or, or joyous or exceptional moments, but a human being is meant to live with that more in his life. To act from that, to speak from that. And that is really what it means to be really human. And that doesn't come automatically. Maybe you experience it in a flash automatically. But there exists, Gurdjieff said, a way, a path to a way of life that enables you to be open to that real eye more often for a longer time. And, and this is one of the hardest things to grasp, <clears throat> your, put your mind around, in his teaching. That I that can appear is not <coughs> subject to the passage of time as we experience it. That I has the quality of what he would call, or what we could call, survival beyond the mortal life. So it's a remarkable notion that this I is in there waiting, calling to us. And if we could open to it more, or, you know, there's no telling what that would be like. You know, I can't begin to say, how am I to describe that? But, you know, we all know a little bit about those kind of moments and what it would be like if there were more than just flashes in our life. That's, I hope that, yeah. that's what I meant by the higher identity. So, just as love is work from our first conversation, so... Um, the effort to have more of the experience of the real I is also work. Yes, <clears throat> it's called work. It's called the work. It's the teaching the is work. called the work because it is work. Right. But it, like love, it's joyous work. Right. It's difficult work, but it's 
He used the phrase conscious labor and suffering. Intentional suffering, conscious yeah. labor intentional. and intentional suffering. And uh, that this helped move us toward the restoration of what he called movement toward objective reason. Right. Yeah, this, this was one of the things what, as a philosopher, professor, and student, calling it objective reason, when I first heard that, I was pretty annoyed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and of course, for us, when philosophers tend to um, spend their time proving that it doesn't exist, showing it what it depends upon. And who is this Gurdjieff who is talking about something so extraordinary as to be reason that is completely absolute, unbiased, uninfluenced by ego, that penetrates deeply into the essence of things through the appearances of the world that we're all trapped in, have objective reason. after, even after a few years of studying the Gurdjieff teaching, I began to say, I see. I see what he means. I begin to see. You begin to see when you meet with human beings who have a level of intelligence that you would only dreamt of, of approaching. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he thought that human beings had three impulses, which he helpfully labeled A, B, and C. Could you describe? Influences, three influences. Influences. Yes, three influences in our in human life are possible. This is another very interesting idea. He thought and he discovered. He claims, and I think it's true, although it was not something I was prepared to believe as an academician, that there has existed since way back in time a, a knowledge of things as they are, independent, behind all the appearances of the world that we tend to believe in. And there exist men and women in communities, in a circle of, of teachers and students who have assimilated such great higher knowledge that comes from a mind that is free of emotional prejudice, egoistic strivings, uh, fantasies, imagination, fears, and intelligence that sees things as they are, and a community that lives in the light of such intelligence. These he called in one book of esoteric community. These communities, these groupings, who have seemed to have come in touch with another level of knowledge in which they are able to be compassionate, caring individuals, have 
one of their as one of their <clears throat> purposes to communicate such knowledge to the world, to others, other human beings, other men and women, to, through various ways, or arts or knowledge or uh, systems of ethics or music or just verbal oral teachings. Or to make the steps, architecture, to communicate that knowledge, that that the path that can lead to that kind of liberation from the illusions and fears and worries of our everyday psyche, and those kind of attempts at communication. That kind of knowledge that is communicated directly from person to person and from community to people, individuals, partly through artistic work or scientific work or philosophical work or action in life, that was called C-influence. For some reason, he had called that the ABC, that was C influence, that was influence which uh, was very pure and was only directed and effectively directed toward helping people to come to a path and to a state and to an understanding and to an orientation of behavior that leads to the perfection of the self, to the real I. Those were influences, and they could be, but they are personal influences. They're not just what I spoke about, only works of art and things. They have to do with personal, people-to-people influences. That's the only way that, that this kind of thing can be communicated, is from human being to human being. When they're out there, when they have created these kind of churches or teachings or religious forms or artistic forms or scientific studies or philosophical systems or symbols of various kinds, uh, they get mixed with everyday life, mixed with the values a little bit of everyday life, the forms and so forth. And they're no longer under the control of the people who were had the ability to give them directly. But they're out there in the world and people begin to be touched by something when they feel them. And when they're touched a little bit by this, what was put into this architecture, this music, this ethics, this form of life, these all kinds of symbols that we know of, when they're touched by that a little bit, they begin to feel that maybe there is something beyond everyday life that we ordinarily know it. And we all have that too. Well, I'm sure everybody in this room, <clears throat> you, you go through life and there are things that have certain values associated with them which are everyday, which have greed and violence and self-serving and personal pleasure and all the good, some good, some bad, some mixed, but some have a certain quality. You walk into a, 
a building or you see a painting or you hear a piece of music and you're touched in another part of yourself as I was. What we spoke of at the very beginning, this being touched by this real I that was there all the time. And we don't know what to call it, but we know that something of a different quality in this music or in this ethics or in this uh, philosophical discourse or in this carpet that I see that was made somewhere as a different kind of a, something calling, touching something beyond egoism, beyond triumph and defeat, beyond self-identity in the usual sense of the term, beyond winning and losing, beyond pleasure and pain. It's another value there. And this kind of thing has, some of these things were actually intentionally, he says, sent into the world by this esoteric circle. The cathedrals, you walk into the cathedral and somehow it calls to you, even though you may not be Christian or anything, there's something in it. That's what he called B influences. They're out there in the world. They've been released into the world, but they're not being given by individuals. A influences, he called, for some reason, that gives that letter. Everyday world, what we see in the newspapers, what we see in the movies, usually what we, what we do in our everyday discourse, money and winning and losing and so forth. The world, as we call it, is mainly A influences. So there's these three things, the three influences. The B influences are begin consciously, but they act in a world of somewhat accidental way. The C influences are strictly conscious. The A influences are mainly accidental and uh, haphazard. You know, as I read in preparation for this, um, I'd, I'd been around Gurdjieff work actually um, since I was a teenager. My roommate in high school, who you know, Chris Wittenbaker, oh, yeah. who uh, is a senior person in the Gurdjieff community in New York, a remarkable man. And when we were uh, seniors in high school and, um, and early in college, uh, we'd go down to Greenwich Village and play the guitar together. It was, in, you know, 1961, 62, that kind of thing. And uh, Chris always had a Gurdjieff book, you know, uh, Tales Beelzebub Told to His Grandson or the Ospensky book In Search of the Miraculous or whatever he was. So in any case, from his late teens on, Chris Wurtenbaker has completely devoted himself to the Gurdjieff work and to Gurdjieff music, actually, among other things. Um, and I w looked into it from time to time, but, but never deeply. And then preparing for this conversation with you, I, I really studied. And what appeared to me, and you've touched on it, but I, I want to expand on it a bit, is that um, Gurdjieff drew some of the most extraordinary people in Europe to him. Extraordinary people. And what drew people above all were several things, but first of all, who he was, his, his manifestation. People thought of him as a, a panther or a lion. I mean, just this enormous vitality and vibrancy. And then 
the people who'd been with him from the beginning, I mean, as you said, he was born in Russian Armenia to a, a guy with some herds who was also a, a local bard, you know, a singer and yeah. counter of tales. And his father, from Gurdjieff's childhood, made him run out in dawn and freezing cold and splash cold water on himself and constantly taught him, because it was a hard world, taught him resilience. Yeah. Taught him resilience. And, um, and then uh, he takes off, as you said, on this 20 years for which we have no objective evidence, but uh, you know, the list of places that he seems to have gone, uh, you know, uh, Jerusalem, Cairo, Crete, Africa, India, Afghanistan, Salon, Persia, Mecca, uh, Thebes, uh, Syria, Babylon, Tabriz, Turkestan, and Tibet, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, and traveling uh, in various disguises, sometimes with a friend or two, sometimes on his own, coming home from time to time, exhausted, penniless, sick, ending up with three bullet wounds, you know, from various adventures, rumored to have been a, a, a czarist political agent as part of the way he survived, and also working perhaps for an Armenian secret society. In other words, how he supported himself, no one knows. But then uh, he comes back, and so he, he writes these stories, and the degree to which the stories are symbolic and the degree to which this describes actual things, his visit to the Sarmang Monastery, you know, who knows, who knows whether that is a symbolic visit. Those who hold it as symbolic have point to all kinds of aspects of the symbolism of how he describes the monastery. Uh, so, uh, you know, the tales Beelzebub told to his grandson, highly symbolic of different types of human beings, you know. those. So he comes back, and he appears in Moscow on the 13th of September, 1917, which is the first time that we begin to have objective information about I think it was, yeah, I think he came, he came to Moscow in 1912. Oh, 1912? Oh, yeah. Forgive me. Yeah. I have from my notes this. Oh, oh, yeah, all right. But in any case, he comes to Moscow, and th there's a pledge, which I found... Uh, that he made, I believe, on the 13th of September, 1917, to live an absolutely unnatural life, absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely uh, irreconcilable, essentially, with the traits entrenched in my personality, that he makes this pledge. Do you remember that? Something like that. Yeah, he makes this pledge, and... Um, he said, outwardly to play a role, inwardly never to identify with it. So he shows up, uh, this guy who is capable of appearing to be a, a crude, you know, sort of, what was his name, his name for that persona? Do you remember the, the crude persona, the kind of... Uh, anyway. Obivatel? No. Yeah. no. Something like that. Yeah. He had this crude persona designed to put people off, <laughs> which, which he might manifest at a banquet or something, you know? So he had all these different personas. Uh, and so then as the Russian Revolution begins, he takes this group of his followers, as you said, and through extraordinary hardships and all kinds of dangers that have, could, could have killed them, he leads them to safety, 
you know, through many, many different places, and finally emerges in, in Western Europe. Uh, and when he comes to London, uh, there's a gathering of the kind of intelligentsia that's interested in these issues. And he was preceded by one of his students, Uspensky, who wrote In Search of the Miraculous. And he meets with this group of, of people, and he blows them away. He just blows them away. And, and they have this sense that at last they've seen the real thing, that Gurdjieff is real. So you have these people who then go to the center he establishes in France and put themselves through the most extraordinary training where they're asked to, in effect, to strip themselves down to nothing. It reminds me of kind of a Marine boot camp where the outer persona is stripped down to nothing and then rebuilt with amazing physical efforts, you know, asked to do all kinds of things in an effort to synchronize the physical, the emotional, the mental, uh, and to bring them to a new place. Now, that's my brief version. What have I got wrong? What have I got right there? You have to read the, the accounts by people who actually went through this. And if you can, some of them are in that book, Gurdjieff Essays and Reflections. Right. And uh, I would suggest there are a couple of things in there that will tell you. Mm -hmm. And there are many others. And you read Our Life with Mr. Gurdjieff, you, yeah. where people were absolutely joyously wishing to participate in the, uh, the absolute goodness of what they were given, the miraculousness, the difficulties which are injured only the ego, never the person. Uh, voluntarily allowing themselves to face their which he said at the beginning, flawed. Radically flawed. Radically flawed nature. And glad to suffer that. Um, because in accepting to see that, they become, or to see how they've been living a life in, in illusions and fear and and wasting their lives, and suddenly to be liberated because Gurdjieff never hurt anybody, ultimately. He caused pain, but it was the pain of a physician causes when he has to remove something. And of course, he more or less encouraged people to sometimes to these false rumors that went on about him, about him, all the bad things he did. Well, for a long time, his, he was, his reputation, but he didn't mind that because he was interested in people who were, wished for truth enough to be able to face the subjective, egoistic pain of being relieved of their illusions. So, as you say, these people were something. They were not just, as we say in the esoteric Judaism, they were not chopped liver. <laughs> they were real people with real accomplishments. 
And so he must, makes you with a wonder to say that they were stripped bare and suffered and all that thing, which was, sounds brutal, but it was not. It was, it was extraordinarily loving. And, but only a person of great knowledge and being could have done that. Otherwise, he would have been a monster. And nobody ever said he hurt them. He made them suffer. But there was a suffer that was the suffering of relieving oneself of something causing, wasting their life with. So he, he had a terrifically bad reputation in certain ways because of that. <clears throat> and it was not at all troubling to him. But there, never, you know, anyone who ever stayed with him and went through what he helped put them through never said anything about the infinite gratitude toward what he helped them with. So maybe the, the, we should really read the accounts of some of these people. You'll see what, what a benevolent influence this was on them. You can't imagine that. I can't imagine that most of us can. So I think that's all I wish to add. Thank you. So you were really introduced to this work uh, right when you were uh, just out of graduate school on philosophy? Well, I, if it's at all of any interest, I was graduated from a very good college and uh, that I met with the Gurdjieff teaching. <coughs> and uh, then when I went to, when I, and I, Departed from it after graduate school, and I went to start teaching at San Francisco State in philosophy. And the Gurdjieff work tended to be very private. It didn't announce itself. It didn't advertise. It kept quiet. Met people who met no new people. It came through personal contact. It didn't. There was no evangelist movement at all. And I happened to be teaching a course in mysticism, which I still do, San Francisco State University. And I happened to mention the name of Gurdjieff as an example of a mystic, which was not really accurate, but what did I know? And uh, someone in the class was part of the Gurdjieff Foundation, the community. He got very excited that someone, his professor, knew about this private organization and came up to me and handed me a book. And I, at first, just brushed it aside because I thought I knew about it. But when I took it home and read it, I realized, no, this is really it. This is something. And I met, and I met, started meeting some people and saw there was a certain quality in them that touched me. And finally I met this man who was a pupil of Gurdjieff, who was a great teacher in his own right, named John Pentland. And when I met him, I knew that this really was the real thing. So in a nutshell, that's the story. So John Pentland, Lord Pentland, and his wife, Lucy Lady Pentland. Yes. Uh, and uh, Lord Pentland founded the New York... He, was, he didn't find it, but he was a 
he became the president of it, a kind of an administrative head. And that helped send He found that he created the group in San Francisco. So just give us a sense, because you've said to me that, and I've read accounts of him, that, again, his being was what had a powerful impact. It wasn't just the words. It was that sense of someone who was connected with that true I. Is that so? That's what I didn't know what to call it. Right. But now I do. It was, it was that. It was that being of a, a presence that touched me. It, it was like a, uh, an energy that entered into my energy and allowed me to see something in myself. That's what it was. Right. So just going back to the beginning of our question, who am I? Why am I here? What this conversation is suggesting is that at least from your point of view, from the, from the Gurdjieff teaching point of view, um, you can answer that from a physical center that you're centered primarily in your body. You can answer that from an emotional center that you're centered primarily in your heart. You can answer that from a mental center that you're uh, focused primarily on your mind. But that all of those are partial answers and have their own distortions. Whereas if one can find a way to mobilize and integrate those three centers um, that uh, through, through conscious, through work and conscious suffering, there is a way to experience the true I. Is that what we're saying? Each, each word you have just said mm-hmm. could be a chapter in a long book. And I would say yes, that's very, but I would also want to add something. What we're talking about as we speak about meaning the meaning of our lives. There is a condition, a state of myself, a state of oneself, a condition that the kind of thing we were talking about, like you all have experienced in your life about the real I, That kind of, it's it's not that it has meaning, but it is meaning. When that is, when one experiences that, it is, it is meaning. It's not something that you have and then say that's what it's for. It's hard to give it a, to describe it because it shows you that your true, real, essential energy that comes from a 
deeper part of the universe, actually, is what your life is for. Because that energy, when that fills the being, then one, a human being, can radiate it further out himself, you know, to other people, but to other people, like we described about John Pentland, Lord Pentland. The energy cannot help but radiate out when you have opened yourself to it. It has that, its nature is to give, is to, is to exchange with life, with nature, with trees, with people, with, and to bring it into the world. So if we had a, if people were developing enough to be open to this kind of energy, if we're speaking about it, it would be, it's through the people who, that it can radiate into the earth itself, into the world itself. And this brings a very, again, to some people, strange doctrine that Gurdjieff has to do with what we just were calling in the other room, Gurdjieff's view of the universe, of cosmology. Because it's not just animals and plants and human beings who evolve, can evolve, and this, by the way, is the only real meaning for Gurdjieff of human evolution, is to develop an openness and a capacity to inhabit, be inhabited by this energy, which by itself radiates love and care and power into the world, but also the earth itself is an evolving being. For Gurdjieff, as for many ancient teachers, the universe is alive. It's not a dead universe with a little pinpoint of life on this little miserable planet. The whole universe is a living being, according to ancient teachings taught that many ways, many times. And in a living universe, everything in a living universe is living. And everything that's living is moving either up towards fulfillment or down, spread out down toward uh, lower, lower manifestations until it reaches a sort of kind of metaphysical end or bottom. And the earth itself is a living being. Now, we understand that that's very acceptable with the Gaia hypothesis, but if it's a living being, it's evolving too. And so mankind is on Earth, that question, why are we here? I would also say it's also a question of humanity. Why is humanity here? Why did humanity suddenly, it wasn't just accidental meetings of, of molecules happen to have oxygen or this or that, by chance, it was mankind, like everything in the ecosystem, everything in trees, nature, forests, mountains, is there functioning in a natural purpose. If you get rid of one species, there's a gap in nature that has to be, that gets filled. So mankind, the species of mankind, appeared on Earth, as I understand, and my understanding is very preliminary, but mankind appeared on Earth because a certain kind of conscious energy was needed by the Earth itself. Certain kinds of perceptions were needed by the Earth itself for its development. So we're here not just for ourselves, even though that great meaning gives us everything we could have wished for. We're here for the Earth 
and not just to, to fix the mess we've created, but to give, radiate something beyond that to what the earth needs. So it's, it, it really is a wonderfully vast question to put that question, why are we here? It's why, not only why am I here in this place, this name, this person, but why is mankind here? And of course then, Gurdjieff tells us, look around at mankind, and what, do we see anything of that predominating in the world? So how dangerous is the earth? Now, how in danger now is the earth? Not just from all the things we recognize, but from the fact that we may not be giving the very thing we're here to give to the earth. Does it make sense to you, at least under, as, a, as a concept? Does it make sense? Yes. I want to touch at least a little bit on Gurdjieff's uh, entire, what do we call it, esoteric system. Uh, there was a guy named Philip Murray, I think, who, who? said, Philip Murray, Murray, yes, who said, no system of Gnostic soter soterological philosophy in the modern world is comparable in power and intellectual articulation. So uh, I think this can either put people off on Gurdjieff or bring them in. In other words, we've been talking about the parts that are more accessible at some level. But we shouldn't avoid the fact but that this astonishing um, description of how the universe works, which is described perhaps best in Uspensky's In Search of the Miraculous, uh, which involved many levels of worlds. But as I understand, and again, please correct me, God was present, actually connected. It was a solar God connected to the divine sun and just sitting in harmony. But God realized that time was, in a sense, an adversary because it would tend to dissolve the way things were supposed to be. So he invented the universe as a system that would sustain itself. Uh, but in inventing the universe, he was no longer able to directly affect events in the far provinces of the universe. And so he put in place uh, two laws, the law of three and the law of seven. And these two laws, the law of three and the law of seven, have uh, provided the mechanism by which the universe now functions. Um, so let me just stop there. Uh, is that essentially accurate, or would you say? I say it's essentially fanciful. Uh, you mean in the sense about, that I've got it wrong? Well, I, I don't... I don't... Half of it is very right. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's pretty good. I mean, my book, I think it's pretty good. I think you're, you're doing... What's the half I've got wrong? I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't be able to give you a clear thing, but it's not something that I've ever heard, the first half. 
But the second part is quite accurate. You mean the part starting with the two laws? Yeah, that was very well said. Well, then, let me just say that the first half uh, comes from a book that some Gurdjieffians don't like, which is James Moore's Gurdjieff biography. (laughs) And it is not something I made up, but his description. No, I know you didn't. uh, uh, His description. I just just didn't recognize it. Right. Okay, so leaving aside whether the first half is right, go to the second half of the the two sets of laws. The laws, those those are essential laws. Everything requires a positive, negative, and a harmonizing force. Mm -hmm. That's at the heart of the Trinity teaching in most spiritual Mm -hmm. traditions. And the law of seven is that events happen in a process with successive stages, and there, in those successive stages, there are seven move, seven stages, and at some points in that process, whether it's an upward movement or a downward movement, mm-hmm. involution downward or evolution upward, there are two places where some new energy is needed from outside or from inside, and those are called intervals. And so the law of seven describes how things develop, and the law of three, how things are, come into being. Mm-hmm. So it's a, now the law of seven is based on the octave scale. Yes. And so there are two points in the octave scale where the distance between the notes is such that unless there's a positive shock, things can go astray? Something like that. Okay. So we don't want to go into this in great detail, but the point is that there's this extraordinary cosmology, right? Um, which, when I read it, and I mentioned this to you, I thought of the other esoteric cosmologies that developed at the same time. So you have Rudolf Steiner's, you have Madame Blavatsky, you have Alice Bailey. Uh, those were three other esotericists with similarly extraordinary complex cosmology. I must say I haven't studied them very much. Right. Uh, And I asked you uh, uh, how you held this extraordinary cosmology in terms of its truth value. And so I would ask you that again. In what sense, in other words, the things we've been talking about up till now are sort of accessible in a direct way to us, that we can understand there are these three parts of us as human beings and that there's a real teaching that, uh, you know, if you just pay attention to the body or just to the heart or just to the mind, that those are, are partial ways to, uh, to the light. Uh, but there's something about integrating them that is a powerful teaching. So that's accessible to us in a sense. But when people start to read In Search of the Miraculous, um, it it seems like a fantastic system, but how do you hold that teaching in terms of uh, its its truth value for you? For example, It's beginning to change just slightly, but it may gather more energy in the 
coming years, <clears throat> that modern science, which has produced extraordinary discoveries and is one of the great achievements of our culture, is unable to basically, basically, speaking in general, is unable to perceive purpose mm -hmm. in the universe. It's true. We are brought up as scientists to disregard that issue mm -hmm. and look at what another kind of causality that Aristotle called efficient causality. That is A followed by B, more or less automatic. And that is good science because it tries to get rid of wishful thinking. It, it understands that just because you want something to be true, just because you'd like it to be true, because you're emotionally attached to it being true, that does not have anything to do with it being true. You can like it, wish all you want to have, you know, that for things then it doesn't matter. You have to look at them first, separate yourself. <clears throat> separate the mind from its emotions and see things with physically verifiable, ultimately, ways. And therefore they come to a conclusion in general worldview and which they either separate off from their religious interests or ethical interests, but they come back basically with the idea there's no purpose out there. There's just physical, chemical, atomic laws, basically. There's no meaning. And it goes the same with it. When we begin to study ethics and values, beauty, goodness, these are not objective properties of the external world, we're told. They're predilections, preferences, habits, subjective conditioning, what likes and dislikes that we have. But uh, in this whole general modern scientific, which I deeply respect and always loved myself, <clears throat> they ignore, and with good reason because they don't know about it, they ignore that you can only, there's a part of the human psyche, this whole thing, which is able to see and feel values out there. Beauty, goodness, bad, evil. There's a part of us which is made to perceive that. And when that comes in relationship with the mind, then you begin to see and articulate and live in a universe that is full of purpose and value. And purpose and value in that sense can't just be communicated with mathematical symbols or with words that are physically verifiable, but require another kind of language which touches the heart as well as the head. And those, that language is sometimes myth, myth, mythology, symbolic, etc. Very precise, but not intellectually precise in the same way that algebra or solid geometry or quantum mechanics is physically precise. So verification is as much a problem of the verifier as it is the object. You, in other words, if you have 
microscopes and telescopes and magnifying glasses in your closet, and you only use a microscope and don't use the telescope, or the, then you're not going to... You may get a whole world view that you can manipulate in this way, but you don't see something that is essential to it, which is the purpose, the meaning, the beauty. I hope I'm not oversimplifying this kind of thing because it, it, the whole mind sees the whole picture. The partial mind sees the partial picture. Therefore, we're living in a partial picture when we just ourselves just depend on science to tell us what the universe is. Now, if you want to come to my class next semester, we can go. I think many of us sense that the universe is alive. Uh, one way that I think about that is that the scientific null hypothesis which is useful for statistical analysis, that in the absence of evidence to the contrary, you assume nothing is happening. Uh, that's useful for statistical analysis, but when applied to the question of whether the universe is alive, there is, at, just at the scientific level, there is no more evidence that the universe is dead no. than there is that the universe is alive. So, in, in other words, the, the presumption that the universe is alive is at least as legitimate as the presumption just starting off there. Yeah. Of course, yeah. of course. Good science would say, I don't, I haven't verified it, but I haven't verified it as it's false either. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, we don't know. Mm -hmm. To go from we don't know to we can't know is illegitimate, mm -hmm. but to go from like we don't know to it doesn't exist is idiotic. Mm -hmm. There's the wonderful William James line that uh, if free choice exists, my first choice is to believe in free choice. <laughs> so, you know, th there's oh, that. Oh, that James, yeah. what a joker. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to come back, um, and then we'll take a few questions, but just to, to come back. Um, I appreciate deeply the depth of your immersion and Gurdjieff, how, what an astonishing force he was. I learned a lot by recognizing that the Gurdjieff teachings has informed your life work. Absolutely. And it's really useful to know that. Well, I hope it is. I yeah. hope it has informed them and not misinformed them, but... Uh, no, I, I think the... the the proof is in the pudding that before I knew that your life work was informed by Gurdjieff, the books are extraordinary uh, contributions. And as I said, completely accessible, yet deeply subtle and, you know, deeply informed. Um, I guess for me, not being a Gurdjieffian, um, sort of how do I hold the Gurdjieff work? Um, I hold it first with great respect. Secondly, and I think actually you've pointed to this in many ways, there's a, a little book called The Ideas of Gurdjieff that came out of a conference that you put on in 1996 with some colleagues. There are so many fundamental ideas in Gurdjieff that evoke uh, the questions that lead us to no. our true self. No. And um, 
And I certainly take away the sense that the traditions that focus, fun, you know, that the three yogas of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, the hatha, you know, the, uh, the bhakti yoga, the yana yoga, and the karma yoga, um, uh, bhakti heart, uh, yana wisdom, karma uh, will, yeah, whatever you want to call it. That each of these, th- although in the in the Gita, interestingly, it's the yoga of the heart that is considered primary. You know, that's the mm. one that wins in the Gita among the mm. in the contest of the three. Uh, it seems to me that for Gurdjieff, um, uh, this integration of the three centers um, and how they lead us to a different level of realization. I can take that as useful just at a practical level. In other words, as we each try to ask ourselves over time the question, who am I, you know? Who is this physical being and what use of this physical body evokes uh, my movement toward uh, what I may be, you know? Then the yoga of the heart. you know, we, we spoke last time about the power of love. And, um, and in my life, that's been completely transformative and has led me toward that experience of the divine as much as anything else, you know. And then the yoga of the mind. Uh, uh, again, pointing beyond itself, as Gurdjieff said, you know, that, or as Gurdjieff indicated, that the words, words cannot do it, that they are a pointer. Pointer, yeah. A pointer beyond so it seems to me that in our lives, because it seems to me this isn't just a philosophical conversation we're having today. We're having a conversation about perhaps the most essential thing any of us can ask ourselves. You know, and often it's formulated, as you know, as who am I, why am I here, where do I come from, where am I going, and to whom am I accountable? You know, those five questions, who am I, why am I here, you know, where do I come from, where am I going, and to whom am I accountable? Um, And that last question, to whom am I accountable, Gurdjieff talked about, if I have it right, and again, you may tell me I have it wrong, uh, that he talked about the awakening of conscience as opposed to cultural morality. And, uh, and that seems to me powerful, and that awakening of conscience seems to me deeply related to your observation that when we look at the universe, we can sense awe and beauty and its aliveness. So it seems to me conscience, the awakening of conscience, is, is a statement that the view that all values are culturally determined is not true. And that there is this, quote, objective reality, which is reflected to us by the awakening of conscience. Yes. And conscience is part of the awakening of the true I. Absolutely. Very I got that part right. Got that A plus. Right. <laughs> I do. So how would you, before we take some questions, how, how would you, uh, what else would you like to say about the Gurdjieff teaching that... Um, and, and as it is, has touched your life, what is the heart of it for as you? As it touched my life, that's a little, no. 
it's more than touched my life, and I hope it's done more. <clears throat> I sometimes wonder <clears throat> when I when I see the world as we all do today. If he, you know, there's this, you know, most of you all know what a koan is in Zen Buddhism. It's a completely unanswerable by the mind question, which is given to pupils to help awaken something beyond the mind. To, uh, and one of the one of the koans. You know, the sound of one hand clapping, all this, everybody knows that these days. But one of the koans is, <clears throat> why did Bodhidharma come to the east or the west, whatever it is? And Bodhidharma was a great teacher who brought Buddhism to China. And that form of Buddhism that became Zen Buddhism in Japan. And it's a koan. Why did this great teacher bring this great teaching? And the question I would like to say about Gurdjieff is, mm. why did he come mm. to the West? And was he too late? Was it? Too late. Too late. He saw very clearly the world, what was going to happen about war and chaos and horror and that's becoming now more and more threatening. And the purpose of the work, among many, which I dare not say I know, but certainly one of the great purposes that the work brings to the world is the creation of people, not so much to introduce a new ideology, new doctrine, new philosophy, a new... A new uh, religion, a new sect, a movement, but to awake, produce people who are awakened, who have this energy that in them that radiates all by itself of goodness into the world. And so I very deeply hope that the school that he tries to find. And he gives a, he has a very high name when he calls it his community of school. That means a community of people who are trying to be inhabited by this kind of life and energy that we are speaking about. That, that my hope is that that will stay alive and, and flourish in the coming years and decades, because from whatever little I understand about the world, it needs that almost more than anything at this point. It needs real people, fully developed or relatively fully developed human beings to be in places of importance without necessarily being famous or being known. And for all we know, some of them are already out there. and allowing something of goodness to appear. So I consider it uh, no less important, nothing more important than what, that, what Gurdjieff has brought and how it's up to us who are 
drawn to this kind of thing. And there are many other kinds of teachings now that are very authentic that are in the West. I'm just hoping that this element, this great element of deeply, deeply true spiritual teachings can continue to thrive. And Gurdjieff was being one of them, which I think of as being of extreme importance. And that's all I mean. That my books are, you mentioned my books, my books are just an attempt to, to speak of current problems in the light of what I've understood of the Gurdjieff teaching, whether it's about money or about education or about religion or about the passage of time, all those things. And uh, I'll be very grateful if people, if you do hear that you think they're accessible and thoughtful. I do, I do. So thank you for asking impossible questions, I really. <laughs> Let's have some impossible questions from the folks the here. questions, oh, probably. Yeah, and uh, let me ask you to keep your, say your name, keep your question brief so we can keep. And I'll try here. to repeat them so they get picked yeah. up. In the, and then after the questions, um, and after I thank uh, Jerry, uh, I'm going to ask Gail if she's willing to play a piece to allow us to leave with a memory of the actual music that Gurdjieff... I told her, I invited her, I should say, to play two pieces. Oh, wonderful. Two pieces at the end. Fabulous. I love it. Okay, so... Uh, yes, please say your name. My name is Lorna Sass, and I would be grateful if you spoke a little bit more about how human consciousness can bring forward, was it the, some universal, something that was needed in the universe, how human consciousness was, and, or humanity was brought on Earth to move something forward. Can you speak more about that? The planet or well, the universe? Yes, that's what I think. <coughs> It's clear, and science in its own way is discovering that the universe is permeated by a very fine level of consciousness. Un, un, unformed, but an energy throughout the universe. Even modern science is beginning to catch on to that. And that means we are, too. And that the earth needs that in a form that only a human being can create in him, in him or herself, in ourselves. The earth needs us to be fully human. And it may be fanciful to see this. Just if you read Gurdjieff's book, Beelzebub's Tales, it's a remarkable book. It's like nothing you ever read. But in it, he says something about how human population, for example, humanity is not giving forth the energy that the earth needs. Therefore, it has to, develop, it has to increase the number of people because this little bit of energy, the very little that they give, is not enough. So nobody has ever explained the hockey stick in the sense of what the earth needs from human beings. It's trying to make up in, quality, in quantity what it lacks in quality. 
So we are really, in that sense, and I know it takes a long time to really explain this, in that sense, without human inner development, the earth may dry up and become like Venus or something. It's, a, it's nothing less than that. At the same time, it gives us tremendous meaning to have become fully human. So in a, in a spiritual or in a morally or ethically alive universe, we have a lot to contribute to this branch of creation, which is one of, it may be, who knows how many branches there are, but in this particular branch, we're responsible to the earth as well as to what's up there. Other questions? Wonderful. Yes. Um, Your name, please. My name is Colin, and um, when you're, I wasn't so well acquainted with Gertrude's work until this talk today. So thank you because that really clued me in. Um, but um, could you maybe, could you maybe compare if you if you looked at medieval alchemy, seven stage alchemy, which is also called the great work by alchemists, and maybe there's a comparison there with Gertrude's work. And, well, yes, um, alchemy, you want to me to see what is a comparison between alchemy and Gurdjieff's work. And I think Gurdjieff's work is kind of alchemy yeah. because alchemy has been misunderstood. It's not some stupid way, of primitive way of taking a piece of lead and making it gold so people can have rich but the lead is humanity, undeveloped humanity. And alchemy is just full of symbolic knowledge about the process by which that takes place and how nature can be used, understood as containing all the elements, real nature, conscious nature out there can contain the elements, the world, the universe, ourselves, our own body, this, this nature contains the elements by which a transformation of a human being can take place. In that sense, Gurdjieff is alchemy. Alchemy had to come into being in the time, in the West anyhow, when the church was not paying much attention to nature, but just talking about God and man. It ignored very much to talk about nature. So alchemy was used, nature was used as a kind of symbolic way of talking about transformation of man. <clears throat> That's a very simple, strict point. But there are good, there's a good, a good book about it. If you send me an email, I'll tell you the book. Okay. okay we'll do. So just in closing, Jerry, um, who am I? Why am I here? The group of people who were drawn here today, some of whom came from some distances, came here first to hear you, but secondly, because this had some resonance for them, this, this question. Um, going beyond Gurdjieff and just to your, your whole body of work, if people here want to continue to pursue that question 
in their lives. What suggestions would you have for an active way of continuing to ask that question in, in, so that it moves us uh, toward whatever we call our true selves? I would say <clears throat> find some philosophical friends, come together, three or four, two or three, whatever, and begin to really speak about this kind of subject with some books. And there may be other ways of meeting people. Uh, there may be other ways of doing this, but since I grew up with books that led me to people, that led me to study this work, There must be people, you must have free people, friends, who can talk about these things. And it, I, I would suggest find some books that are meaningful to you and talk about them and then see if help will appear. Is it, there's, this is a center, galactic, if you like, certainly a terrestrial center of people searching for things like this. There are a lot of things out there. Some of them are... <laughs> but some of them are real. And if you try to do it that way, with just get together, get a book, get a, find a person who interests you, talk to them, look. Um, I would think, I hope I might, no, it's not presumptuous of me to think that maybe in today's conversation, you may have some clue as to what, where to go and what might be of interest or worth exploring. Just the secret is, one of the secrets is how to be open-minded without being gullible, and how to be critical without being cynical. Goethe says, only people with a critical mind have any place here. So be critical, but not cynical. And someone, teacher of mine once said, we need to be open-minded but not so open-minded that our brains fall out. <laughs> now, on that note, Barbara, <laughs> So let's go back into the silence just for a few minutes and listen to Gail Needleman play some of Gurdjieff's music.
Gail Needleman on piano, playing Gurdjieff. Jacob Needleman. <laughs> Jacob Needleman, philosopher. Thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you for having me here. I was delighted to be here. Yeah.